welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode number 200. This week we recorded from the Kalahari at that conference in Wisconsin Dells, Wisconsin. We had some crazy awesome guests, including Keith Casey, Caitlin Drew, Edward Thompson, and Curtis Jibbo. Raygun gives you complete visibility on errors, crashes, and performance problems affecting your end users. Replicate issues in seconds rather than digging through log files or having to rely on users to report errors or crashes. Raygun gives you a window into how users are really experiencing your software applications. Check it out today at raygun.com. I'm a junior, so I've never used my first name like in any professional sense. It's been always been D. Keith Casey. Yeah. And so years ago, people started asking me what it was for, so I just started making up stuff. Yeah. And I decided danger is what it is. So I actually <laughs> changed our employee directory so that my first name comes up as danger. Yeah. And I gave an all-hands company-wide That's presentation cool last June. Oh, yeah. And um, as a throwaway, my last line uh, on stage, I was like, hey, look, if you have any questions, feel free to look me up. Go to OrgWiki and look for danger, and you'll find me. <laughs> <laughs> and three hours later, I get an email from our CEO, yeah. who, by the way, has just taken our company public. So like, this is not, this is not like five buddies sitting around in a garage yeah, yeah. or something. And he goes, I went to OrgWiki and I looked for danger and I found you. And that's it. That's the whole message. And I'm like, oh God. And I, look, oh, thought, and I can still log into stuff. Yeah. So I'm like, I still work here. <laughs> So, yeah, I don't yeah. think we can do that, Carl. We can. Uh, Although uh, I did point out to you uh, recently that somebody changed their job title title to security curmudgeon. Yeah, and you were pretty shocked by that. Well, and that was legit. Like that was like the internal title. That wasn't. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was the internal yeah. job. So we can call ourselves whatever we want. Oh, I I decided to t- pick up the uh, title API problem solver because okay. I didn't like my normal title, um, and I actually put it on my business cards. So it says API problem solver. Mm-hmm. Just for that reason. So it's on LinkedIn. It's on my business cards. Um, I've got them to start introducing me at, that way at conferences. Okay. So it must be real. I call it title escalation. So we had, um, we actually had in our group before we, we've gone through like reorgs and all that kind of stuff, but we actually had Sacha come in and talk to our group. And uh, at the time we had just, they had moved us into a different division in Microsoft. And at one point they like put us into, it was essentially in sales. And we're like, we're not sales. We're not selling stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's not that's, how that's this a rough works. Spot. You know, especially since we're going in and people will be using Windows, and we're like, no, no, no. In this particular case, you should use Linux. We're clearly not salespeople. Ooh, yeah, I can see some salespeople <laughs> yeah. being unhappy so, with you. So Sacha said, he goes, I don't care what you call yourself. He's like, you can call yourselves whatever you want. And that so, sounds like an executive accepted. edict. So it's like, yeah, it's, so it's like Sacha at at one point while I was still in the org gave us a blank check. To, so I, you know, I'll change my title. For whatever the situation is. Fantastic. So well, today I'm just, you know, awesome podcast guy. All right. Well, see, my, my mindset is like I do have a title and I hate the title. And uh, it, it has marketing in it. Mm-hmm. And I say, look, I work with developers. I work with architects. If I walk in and I'm introduced as a marketing guy, I'm dead. Yeah. Before I open exactly. my mouth, yeah. I'm dead. My credibility is negative at that point. Yeah. But if I walk in and everyone says, this is the API problem solver. Yeah. The developers go, wait, what? And the like, the architects go. Oh, wait a minute, we have API problems. Yeah. And then the the senior exec, C level VP type people go. Wait a minute, you do what? Yeah. And I have a moment yep. to build some credibility. Yeah. And that's what I use it as. It's not as like a, a big deal about the title. I don't care about the title. I care about not losing credibility before I yeah, open my mouth. Exactly. Problem solver is perfect because that means that you are there to help them. Yes. Not to sell them something. Yes. Well, and, and, and it's an action. Yes. You know, like mm-hmm. this guy is going to get something done. Yeah, and and my mindset is that we need to we need to map the needs and the we Okay, so I I tell my team at Okta every single day. I go, "Look, we have developers have two goals in life. First one is to build something useful. The second goal is to go home." <laughs> and every single developer goal maps into one of those. Like we yeah. want, we want to make sure that the stuff we use actually gets used, that people find it valuable, that people love it, that people, that it doesn't sit on the shelf afterwards. Yeah. And once it's built, we want it to work. We want it to be reliable. We don't want that call at four in the morning when our critical system breaks. And so I say, Hey, look, if we can walk in and we can help solve their problems, whichever those problems are, that's good. And if we do anything that gets in the way of either of those things, we're dead. 
Okay. You want to move forward a little oh, bit? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Problem solving. I just absolutely. want to make sure that silky voice comes through. So. Ooh, my silky, silky voice. <laughs> well, let's talk about the API stuff because I know, like, you know. I we, don't know anything about APIs. Oh. <laughs> so I have a problem. Oh, oh, I do know about problems. I've I, created many. I need to know more about APIs. Okay. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, we've had you talking on here about security before. So yes. I, think, I think there's. There's two major aspects of APIs, and obviously the the first side is is security. Mm-hmm. So um, I know we we started talking a little bit before I hit record, and we're just gonna. Uh, I don't know where this show randomly started, but it started at some point or this <laughs> this uh, particular interview. But like, what what is your take on security and APIs? Oh, security and APIs generally sucks. Yeah. Um, I think that, and that part of that becomes of the evolution that happened with APIs. Generally, most API, very few companies launch an API publicly initially and said, "We are now an API company." You can count the companies that, that kind of on one hand. Right. Um, the vast majority of APIs came about as I have I have a particular problem. My group, my team has a problem, so I'm going to build this API for five people, mm-hmm. and I can name those five people. So it's a very small, tight group, and so we we kind of were loose on security and it wasn't a big deal because I could turn on and I can look at the people that are actually using my APIs. And then things got to be a little successful and architects got involved and they said, well, wait a minute, the API that you've built, we actually have five other teams building something similar. Can we just let them use your API? And we said, yes, that's great. Cause remember now we've built something useful and everyone loves it. And so now instead of six teams building the same thing, we have five teams reusing what one team built and that's great. Our teams love it. And then, um, and then at that point, we're probably looking at like API gateways and starting to think a little bit about scaling stuff, but it's still internal to our company. It's in, inside our firewall. Uh, and then some VP level exec gets involved and goes, well, if this worked for the team down the hall and the team across campus, this will work for our customers and partners. <laughs> and everyone goes, yes. And the team that built it said, wow. This is an important project. Yeah, yeah. And we all got very happy about that. So we started opening up to third parties. And now we can't name the people using it. We could probably name the customers, the companies using it, but not the individual people. Um, and then some C-level exec gets involved and says, I'm in charge of digital transformation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've all been there, haven't we? Yeah. Uh, hopefully my name's not attached to this podcast, right? No. Um, danger. <laughs> danger. Uh, so a C-level exec gets involved and says, you know what? If this is helping our customers, this is helping our partners, this is helping people inside our company. Let's open this up. Let's open up this data and everything uh, to, to third parties that can do amazing things with our APIs. Um, and we've seen lots of companies do that. And the problem is we never stop to reevaluate the security considerations because our security assumptions that apply to when it's those five people are radically different than when it's five million people. Absolutely. And we never stop to get the security team involved. And when somebody finally goes, well, wait a minute, we need to involve the security team. What it is is it's that C-level exec dropping a note to the CISO saying, hey, by the way, we have this API. It works. Don't worry. We've been using it for a year. Uh, We're launching this new digital initiative in 30 days. Can you review it? And the only thing your your CISO hears is you've been using this for a year. You, say, wait, wait, wait. The what lawyer, data? The, I, would, I would say the lawyers as well, right? Yeah, the lawyers security freak out. And security legal. freaks. Yeah. And we, we've put our security team in this awful situation where they have to either stop the project cold and say, no, 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 that thing you've been doing for a year, you're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Or they need to let it ship. Yeah. And there's no, there's very little middle ground in there. And it's terrifying. This is how we end up with things like Equifax. Mm-hmm. And it's because we end up with these situations where it started with a, our security assumptions start out very simple mm-hmm. and they got more complex, but we never stopped to reevaluate them. And so I, I tell developers I work with, we have an awful, awful relationship with the security people mm-hmm. in our organization and it's our fault. This is fundamentally our fault. If we just stopped at said, hey, look, when it's only our team, okay, that's great. But if this is successful, what happens with it? Because remember, we want to build something useful and go home. So if we build something useful here and it goes from five to 50 to 500 to 5 million people using it, how do our requirements change? Mm -hmm. Even if we can't fix it when it's just the five of us, noting it, saying we need to reconsider this when the time comes, can then go, other people on the team can go, well, wait a second. Our assumptions have changed. Our limitations have changed. Let's stop and reevaluate these. Yeah. So how do we go about fixing that problem? Because I know, like, I've been on teams before where it's like, hey, we need this this feature, even if it's not security, when we get to this point. And that's just a backlog item somewhere that gets lost with the other 5,000 items that are in the backlog. Yes. You know, how do we turn that into an actual trigger? So that, that's the kind of thing of when, when it goes from that five people to five teams getting mm-hmm. involved, that's part of the architect's job 
architect is supposed to have a wider perspective than just my code. They're supposed to say, well, wait a second, where does this fit into the overarching organization? Like, how does this come together? And so it's their job to be able to say, well, wait a second, there's some security issues flagged here. Let's see if they apply. And then when the VP gets involved to open this up to customers and partners and everything, that there's somebody that has a voice in that conversation to go, well, wait a second, we have security considerations, let's stop and consider them. And then if we're considering it earlier in the process, since it's unlikely we'll, we'll handle it day one, if we can handle it day three, four, not great, but significantly better than what we have yeah. now. I think that's probably a good approach. I mean, the, the problem that I always see is, you know, because we have this, this happens at Microsoft where we do all this training and it's like, you know, Microsoft runs on trust and we have all this privacy training and it's all, mm-hmm. it's all great stuff. And they're like, yeah, whenever you are building something, you need to talk to this team and then you watch a different training, talk to this team. And it's um, hard. Yeah. And, and, and I think as, as a developer, like you, you're just like, listen, I just, I just want to expose this data and do this thing. And, and then you start talking to the lawyers and they're like, well, you can't do that. You know, like we need a year worth of approvals. You start talking to security and all these other things. And, and, and it, it start it starts to explain why. Uh, Microsoft, which is, uh, you know, I would say probably far more disciplined than a lot of smaller companies. Mm-hmm. A lot of times that's the explanation of why things take so long because they are checking all those, those boxes. Yeah. But uh, I can, I mean, I can just, I can understand the why developers are afraid to do that because yes. it will kill their project or, or delay it from, at least from their perspective. Well, but. The thing is, uh, I mean, there's there's been tons of studies over the years that show the later in a development cycle that you find a bug, yeah. the harder and the more expensive yep. it is to fix. If we look at security as a bug, and we deal with it it's earlier in the process, 10. well, yeah, it's I way mean, worse than a but bug. It, but if we look at a security vulnerability as a bug, the earlier we consider it in the process, the less of an impact it's going yeah. to have. And then when it does break, because no matter what we do, there will be insecure software out there. The consequences of it will be that much smaller because we've considered it that much earlier. So the the, the solution, I don't want to say a solution because there's never like a, a... It's an approach. There's not an absolute... Yeah, so, so that, that approach for security, I think, has actually worked out pretty well. There's been, there's been a lot of products made at Microsoft where there's an extremely disciplined... Like it, there's this rigor that has been ingrained in the developers that are building something where they they refuse to put any of those security gaps in there like from day one like security mm-hmm. is this thing that that if if they miss security in, anywhere along the way like a developer in the room will be like hey like you can't do that that's a bad practice yes. and like we that's really helped from the security standpoint like you Absolutely. have to be like that um and i you know i think the the same thing applies to your apis and i think it's I think we need to we need to start getting better about knowing security in the beginning, and then mm-hmm. scale, and and then I think the big point that you're pointing at, you're pointing out is um is audience. You know, like yeah. here's my audience today, but here's my, here this this is my potential audience, and I I need to think about that today. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my colleagues coined the phrase. I, I love it. I wish I came up with it. She said, um, "APIs are the new shadow IT." Yeah. And it's such a brilliant, <laughs> coherent, clear statement. I'm like, ah, oh, I wish I came up with it. But yeah. I mean, it explains a lot. We have data leaking out there in so many places and so many awkward ways. Like the sooner we can detect that and figure it out and solve it earlier in the process, the better off we are. Yeah. And I, I don't like the other approach, which a lot of these companies, like if you look at like Twitter or any of these like big public facing services that actually have this data that you really want to get at. Mm-hmm. It feels like, I mean, in the beginning, they were just like, yeah, here, everybody, here's an awesome API and look how cool cool we are. Yes. And then they're like, oh, wait, we're a business. We yes. need to make money. And then they're like, <laughs> no API for you. <laughs> so can I can I talk Facebook, uh, Facebook and Cambridge Analytica yeah, for a second? Yeah, that's probably a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. So <laughs> the, this, this whole thing has been, uh, Cambridge Analytica has been really kind of amusing for me because, um, let's see, it's 2018. For about 10, 12 years now, I've been talking about this as data security and APIs and all this mm-hmm. sort of things. So when the Cambridge Analytica thing got announced because it went down in 2014. That's yep. when all the data was collected. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my friends in Austin said calling Cambridge Analytica a data breach is like calling Han- Halloween a candy breach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Facebook's entire business model is collecting, packaging, aggregating, and reselling our data. Yeah, That's their entire business model. I mean, yes, they do it for ad targeting and everything. Yeah. So Cambridge but Analytica... Again, that's, but that's, that's based on your personal data. It's exactly. All, targeting is the only reason you're buying those ads. Exactly. And so Cambridge Analytica, did they break the terms of service? Potentially but no worse than anyone else did. Yeah. That's the thing that's like driving people up the wall. So it's my- It's kind of like 
going back to Halloween, when you get mm-hmm. up to the bowl that says take one and you just grab a handful. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, did we break the rules? It's a gray yeah. area. <laughs> yeah, but there was no enforcement. Yeah. I mean, if, if this was such a bad rule to break, why was there no enforcement on it? Yeah. That's a fair question to ask. Yeah. But uh, so the, how did that happen? I mean, it, uh, I, the API, I know that they basically like you would you would register as an app. Yeah. And when a user was able to use your app, Facebook was just like, Bleh. yeah, <laughs> like, so depending on what scopes you uh, the application requested. So like what information they requested, yeah. um, you could do something like basic profile, which was like name, email address, whatever. And then they expanded out to say, you know, religious preferences, political relationships, uh, family, uh, all this sort of thing. But the default initial settings were everything. Yeah. So I could get everything. I could get your likes. And I actually wrote a a blog post about this, um, I don't know, three or four years ago about if I just have your your first name, first and last name, and your likes, what can I discover about you? (laughs) Because Odds are you like particular politicians mm-hmm. and you clicked like on them mm-hmm. or you like particular issues or geographies or technologies or whatever. And just from that information, I can discover a lot about you. Um, I did an initial analysis of it and I found that I had about 85% accuracy with about six hours of development. Mm-hmm. And then it was funny because I talked to a group from Stanford three months later because they released this huge research paper on it. And they said, well, with our like data, we can... We can determine those things with 96% accuracy. Yeah. I'm like, wow, that's great. And they're like, it took us three years to collect the data. I'm like, dude, I did this in six hours. Yeah. I'll take 85%. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like that, that's enough to put yeah. money yeah. on. And there's a lot of correlations too, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean it, somebody the effort behind this is yeah, minimal. A particular brand of car and now you know what kind of cell phone they're going to buy. I mean, it, and, and I'm there's, just making there's one There's weird up, things but, like that, but yeah. I can say, hey, look, uh, you know, you mark is your favorite location or your favorite team as the Vikings. Mm-hmm. You know, you like snow tires. It's pretty clear where you are. Right. Like there's not many places that right. have that. Exactly. Um, but, you know, political candidates, mm-hmm. that's a really easy one. Political issues. Yep. You know, if you're in favor of gun control and abortion, I know politically where you are. Yeah. There's, I don't need much else. Yeah. And it, and it could be, I mean, I assume that, I always assume this like with, with like Twitter and Facebook, like as I'm scrolling through, sometimes I'll pause. Yep. And, and they I, capture all Okay, that. I was going to say, I'm like, I am 99.9% yes. sure that they know when I'm pausing. Yes. Yep. So I, I'm not even clicking on anything. If I see mm-hmm. if I see a salacious headline about, you know, a particular politician or something, and I pause, boom. Yes. They have a whole bunch of data about me. Well, it's crazy. I, I, uh, about a year and a half or so ago, I installed a plugin called Ad Nauseum into all my Chrome installs. Okay. And it, what it does is it, first of all, it hides all the ads on the page. Mm-hmm. So I don't see any Google ads or whatever. And then it clicks on all of them. <laughs> all of them. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Google right now, I checked this recently. Google right now thinks I'm a 65-year-old woman. <laughs> Can you guys, this, this isn't a video. Do I look 65? Uh, Do I look like a woman? Quite, no. Okay. So I'm considering that a pretty good win on my part. Uh, I'm that having is, fun with it though. That is really interesting. It that, clicks on all of the ads. Yeah. That, you know, that really screws with their, like, um, you know, like the success rate too, because oh, that absolutely. brings, that brings down like the ECP or the CPM and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Numbers. And realistically, I, I hate advertising. You are as a chaos a monkey is what you are. I am a permanent Real chaos world. monkey. In fact, my badge for those of you listening says danger on it. Yeah. Cause I'm registered for that conference, this conference, whatever you want to call it as danger Casey. Yeah. So, so, uh, you know, I am kind of wondering then, you know, this idea of having this alter ego or this, this alternative name you use, mm-hmm. um, that probably works like a lot, right? <laughs> like, I mean, who, who ver? I mean, obviously that conference is not verifying your name whatsoever. Uh, I'm just no, thinking, they're amused by it. I mean, there's obviously banking and stuff like that, yes. but I mean, there's probably a ton of stuff where you don't even have to use your real information. Yes, uh, if you need government issued ID, it becomes yeah, an issue. Wait, so, exactly. um, I actually had to call United for a service issue a few days ago, and I realized they actually know my first name. Yeah, and the. Like them, the banks, the government, like it's a very small group that knows that. In fact, I've got a buddy who does uh, information digging and gathering online and everything. And I talked to him about a month or so ago. And he goes, Keith, I've been trying to figure out what your first name is and I can't find it. I said, no, you found an answer. What was it? He goes, Danger. <laughs> okay. Okay. And it's not, but yeah. hey, that yeah. works. That's your middle name. It's my first name, but hey, as far as you know. Danger, danger. <laughs> so we, we've talked to you quite a bit in the past. You know, How many times have you been to that conference? Uh, I've been to every single one. So that's what, 
25 or 30 of them now? <laughs> I think no, I think this is seven. I don't, the, the, the actual days don't count. Yeah, oh, the actual days yeah, don't count. Yeah, he's trying, he's trying to give us bad data. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I'm 103. I've been to 25. Yes. I've been coming since uh, 1898. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was born in 1532. Me too. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. So, since you don't live in the area, what, what, what's the draw to come up here to that conference? Uh, so I actually knew Clark and, uh, Clark Sell, our fearless leader, and Brandon Satram, who's on staff and everything. I've known those guys for a couple years before this. Mm-hmm. And Clark said, Hey, I've got this crazy idea. I'm going to do a conference. I'm like, Okay, that's cool. I was organizing conferences. I'm like, yeah. That job sucks. <laughs> yeah. Like, what? He goes, It's going to be in rural Wisconsin. I'm like, what? He goes, it's going to be at a water park. I'm like, I'm in. I'm like, I don't know what else you're doing. He's like, it's going to be summer camp for geeks and we're going to do this and it's going to have a silly name. I'm like, okay. All right. I got this. Um, but realistically, I love that conference, this conference, however you want to refer to it. Um, I speak at probably six or seven conferences a year, 10, probably another four or five. And this is hands down my favorite conference and always has been because I describe it as a family reunion where everyone's your weird aunt or uncle. Mm-hmm. where you're like, let's get together, let's have fun for a few days, and maybe you spend a little too much time with these people, but then you don't see each other for a year. Yeah. <laughs> but the what Clark and crew have done with like uh, the Slack channel around it, and there's one guy, um, uh, Rolando, who has, runs a trivia channel within Slack. And so there's just that steady drumbeat of like, look, we actually get together, we actually yeah. like each other, we interact, we have fun. And then to come here for a week in the middle of Wisconsin and bring kids and family and everything like that and just screw around. It's an awesome blast. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. I, it's funny. I was thinking like, had, had Clark come to me with the idea that you talked about, I don't know if I would have said it was a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> I would, I would have obviously been super wrong. Yes. Yeah. Well, I've been wrong many times. I've this whole thing. I was like, are you sure? Are you sure? Cause Clark, I'm like, this is a big check. Are you sure you want to do this? And they've put together an amazing show. <laughs> as, as Clark walks by. Oh, my God. We're talking about by. him and he walks by. Yeah, he's, uh, he's pretty famous now. He's, uh, he's tough to get a hold of now. Cause yeah. He's, yeah. But this, is, this, this conference has gotten it's, – it's huge. This, which conference? <laughs> that conference. That conference. Gotcha. <laughs> I, I moved uh, in the area just because of this conference. Wow. That conference. All right. No, That's dedication. Kidding. But I am close now. So Nice. I come up from Austin every year and I won't miss it. That is awesome. And I, I love seeing you every year. So yeah, thank, thank you. you for making the I love being here. on the show and having, having fun with you guys. Cool. Well, thank you so much. All right. Thank you. So now we're talking to Caitlin Drew. How's it going, Caitlin? It's good. How are you guys? <laughs> good, good. So um, you have a really interesting session here. So it's about chemistry. Yes. So tell us about that. Um, so I took chemistry as a class in middle school, and I just really, really liked it. Yeah. And so I decided to go even more into it on my own time. And I always know, speaking here so many years, I know that teaching is the best way to really learn something. Yeah. So instead of just learning something for me, I decided to learn it for a class. Okay. That is that is such a great point, though. Because um, whenever you teach it, like, you have to know what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> you anticipate questions. Like, you're, you're just forced to understand what you're talking about. That's definitely how I've learned to uh, program my robot, yeah. <laughs> like robots. Yeah. I was going to say, like, I'm looking at your previous sessions. <laughs> So, so looks so, like 2015 was a huge year. So so let, let's take a step back <laughs> sure. a bit and right, talk girl. a little bit about you. So how old are you? Uh, I'm 15. And how many <laughs> years have you spoken at that conference? Um, well, the first one here, 2014 was your yeah. first? And so, then, so... And you've spoken every year since then. So you've spoken <laughs> for five years. So yeah. That, 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 I just have to say, that's pretty impressive. Thanks. So <laughs> it, it seems like you, you've, you've taken like all of these years and you've really understood that like how much more you get out of this. Um, but how, how scary was it or how prepared were you your first time when you were 10 years old speaking? Yeah. So I've been coming here every year. So this is my seventh year. I've been coming since I was eight. And so I'd seen the first year there weren't too many family track speakers, but the second year I came, there was another kid speaker and I was like, a kid like speaking (laughs) to kids I was like okay I could totally do that and so the next year I was talking with my mom and I was like because I had gone to this conference and I learned about scratch and so I was like hey I could totally teach about this yeah and so my mom was like okay you're not just going there and giving your first speech so she made I did a kind of like a user group for her work 
So the people at her work, their children came to my talk when I was 10 before I went and spoke here. And I think that was a good learning experience to say, okay, sometimes not everything's going to go well, Yeah. but be prepared for it. And it was, I still remember standing up there and like people everywhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, <laughs> but it was, it worked great. Yeah. And I've really liked it every year since. So how did you like power through that? Cause like, that's it does, no matter what your age is like that's really difficult right <laughs> so like how did you power through that did you i mean did you just you just kept talking or like you know did, any strategies that that worked for you at that age well i've always had a laser pointer yeah for my speeches and so i have like i can press it with my thumb and i feel like that's good for fidgeting but sometimes not <laughs> yeah but i use the laser pointer kind of to read it it also kind of paraphrase it and Definitely having a good slide deck that you know, yeah, mm-hmm. like, really helps. So it's a good thing that I had gone over it with another group beforehand, mm-hmm. because I did know it for this speech. And even if I kind of, I was really nervous, but I had, like, adults that I knew that were there supporting me, and my parents were there, and it didn't help that they were live-streaming it to my grandparents, but... <laughs> no pressure. <laughs> I know, but... It... I think I just, I like speaking a lot and I like being able to teach kids what I know and just teach people what I know. And so I think that's just what's kept me here. And you're probably a way better teacher, honestly, than like Carl and I would be. Well, just be, if you're, if you are a kid teaching another kid, like you actually understand, like you have some perspective, you know, Mm -hmm. whereas we're just like, oh, let's. Let's use small words. I, I don't know. Like, we, we just, you know, we're not that smart. Like, you know, there's, there's no secret that we have, like, being older, right? So you probably just have better perspective, to be honest. And I remember saying I introduced, like, 60 kids to the word Boolean because I put it up there, like, as a vocabulary word. I'm like, does anybody know what this is? Because I do now, and you will, too. Yeah. See, Carl and I would probably just assume everybody knows what that means, and then everybody would be confused, and, <laughs> and then they just complain at the end, like, you know, nobody knew what you were talking about. <laughs> Yes. How how big of an influence were your parents on you as you started this and as you continue to do it? Yeah, so both of my parents are in software engineering. Um, My mom programs and my dad does uh, cybersecurity. Okay. And since being six, I've been going to robotics and technology camps. I know HTML, Python, um, Robot C. Like, I've been doing technology for years. Mm -hmm. And so... Going to a tech conference was kind of just another day in the life, (laughs) but I didn't really think that it would amount to something like speaking at it every year and this being the highlight of my year and learning the community of a conference and like a whole community. That's probably a good point. Having it be the highlight of your year. So you, I assume then throughout the year, you're probably thinking about like, here are the things that I'm learning. Like, what am I going to speak about? Like where, what can I do sort of as my grand finale for the year? Yes. <laughs> yeah, because I remember every day I'm like, I'm at school. I like school, but sometimes it's a lot. But I just think, all right, summer comes and I get to come to Wisconsin. And I'm <laughs> yeah. very excited for that. And so like this year, I took geometry. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I wouldn't speak at at a conference. But that's something I should speak at to someone else so I know it better because that was a hard class. Yeah. But it's just a way of, uh, yeah. Yeah. So something like geometry, I mean, you could, that'd be very, that'd be, uh, you know, very much needed for like games and stuff like that too. Like you could make like a geometry based games. I mean, there are geometry based games now. So, um, yeah, you could probably turn just about any subject into, into something computer related and, and go. Yeah. Over in this day and age. Yeah. I did want to talk about these sessions because this is really cool. So 2014, yeah, it was scratch for kids. Mm-hmm. I actually remember that. Uh, coding for kids, uh, 1.0. So you had two different grades in there. That was 2015. Also in 2015, you did the family keynote. That's impressive. 2016, Vex Robotics stories around the campfire. 2017, let's educate. Oh, that, so the, actually, oh, so you had a chemistry one last year as well? Yes. Yeah, so oh, cool. I did it last year and I took a video and then I watched it and realized how I could improve it this oh, year. So this one's going to be really good. Yeah. <laughs> That's the hope anyway. So like, t- tell me, like, what are you talking about in your session? I mean, I know it's chemistry, but like what, so just give me, give me like an overview of the session. So like, you know, the three basic types of matter, you know, yeah. solid, liquid, and gas. We all know those, but how are they, we know that they're made of atoms, mm-hmm. how crushed together or spread apart they are, but what actually are atoms and how can they actually like 
we're doing a lot on the periodic table on because I know a lot of people, especially me. I've seen it on teachers' walls for years, but I'd never actually known what it was. And so this is actually telling you what the periodic table is. And for people that you see, you know that NACL is salt, but why? Yeah. Yeah. And so I liked knowing the why behind stuff. And this is a good session for that. That sounds super interesting, actually. <laughs> I really want to go to that. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge fan of chemistry, but like, <laughs> I, I love, you know, it is, it is interesting. Like when you're in school, it's, you know, here's how this works. Here's how this thing over here works. And it's like, wait a second. Like you really haven't like connected those things. Like why does this, why does the world actually work this way? You know? So it sounds like you're actually covering it from that aspect, which I think is way more valuable. And I like, cause I'm a kinesthetic learner. So I like having hands on things, mm-hmm. which I try to incorporate in my sessions. So in this one, I have 60 balloons to blow up by four mm-hmm. because these are my subatomic particles. <laughs> We're going to have children running around these rooms being subatomic particles. So <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm excited for that. Yeah, that's super cool. <laughs> yeah, so it sounds like you're almost kind of hooked on speaking though. So do you have do you have plans or are you already thinking about what your next thing is or do you just kind of take it as it goes? Well, so I've gotten pretty comfortable around speaking of course. Today the day of I'm always a little bit nervous, you know, but I've really enjoyed getting to learn and I took a couple um uh, but oh toastmasters i took a couple of toastmasters classes just to get more basics on talking and um it's ways in like running for student officer positions at school like Mm -hmm. winning those because i can speak in front of people and then being able to speak in front of people as part of the job Mm -hmm. and being comfortable with it has really helped because before all this if i tried to run for an officer i was not doing well Mm Man, this is this is a this is a great start to your career. Like I, th- I think you're going to do just fine. <laughs> so that's uh, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, I mean, do you go to other sessions then at that conference, and and then do you end up networking with a lot of people? Do you see a lot of the same people every year? Yeah. So I know a lot of people through my mom, yeah. who has come here, and she knows a lot of the community. But I met my best friend who I only see once a year at this conference I met here seven years ago oh that's cool and we're both the same age and we were both sitting in a corner because our parents were tech nerds and we were just sitting <laughs> and we were because there weren't really family track yeah and so we were just kind of in the corner on our phones you know and we kind of linked up and here I'm not here with my parents I'm here with that family oh really <laughs> because we've grown so close over the seven years that we've known each other okay I was gonna say how, how so do you live pretty close together then I live in Texas, oh. and she lives in Wisconsin. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we call a lot, but we don't really see each other other than once a year. Yeah. So. I, I do have, I do kind of have a question about that then, because I think, you know, the, the dynamic, like, it is so much easier to communicate these days. So is it pretty easy to, then to have, like, a long-distance friend like that? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, and then we, every year for that conference, since a couple years ago, when we did um, some sessions together, we... We'll have a building session where we'll just FaceTime for days and just work on our sessions together. Oh, that's cool. And we've done that every year for the last four years. Yeah. And it's just a fun way to create, like, reconnect and also, like, help each other out. Like, oh, I think this would be a cool thing to have in your talk. Yeah. That's probably just a good strategy for, like, you know, building a presentation with somebody, too. Because, yeah. you know, I think you probably have these more uh, social habits um, you know, thinking like, oh, let's, let's jump on a video call for like days and like, and, and, you know, work this thing out. Um, so that's, that's pretty cool that you're able to do that. Um, any other questions, Carl? Nope. This is, this is super cool. I, I would love to see the session. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to be able to make it over there, but I would love to see that session. That is, that is super cool. You should think about, um, I would love to see that in like a YouTube video or something. I think you could, you could probably be successful there as well. Um, but, uh, yeah, congratulations and thank you so much for coming on here and talking about this. This is, you, you are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Raygun provides full stack error, crash, and performance monitoring for tech teams. Whether you're a software engineer looking to diagnose and resolve issues with greater speed and accuracy, a product manager drowning in bug reports, or you're just concerned you're losing customers to poor quality online experiences, Raygun can provide you with the answers. Get full stack error and performance monitoring in one place. The next time you're struggling to replicate errors and performance issues in your code base, think Raygun. Head over to raygun.com. 
get up and running within minutes, and dramatically improve the online experiences of your users. So now we're talking to Edward Thompson. How's it going, man? It's going great. It's good to see you. Yeah, we talked to you last at Build, right? At yeah, Build. A couple months ago at this point. It's amazing how fast that time has flown. Oh, and, I know. And that was... An, that was we had an awesome discussion. So, like, you have you have big shoes to fill, even though they're your own shoes. <laughs> you have to continue to fill those big shoes. All right. Well, you know, I have freakishly large feet, like a Simpsons villain. So it'll work out fine. Okay, perfect. Like sideshow Bob. Uh, okay, so you have a session here at that conference. What is it? I do. Uh, it's called Security Holes in Git, and the idea is that over the last you know ten years that we've been working with Git, the version control system. Yeah. Uh, the Git developers have uncovered have uncovered a number of little security holes, and so you know, can you imagine if you just like Git clone some repository down from GitHub, and all of a sudden your hard drive gets deleted, or it's mining Bitcoin or something? Uh, it's it's that level of stuff. You're freaking me out, man. It's it's terrifying. <laughs> this is not good. No. So I mean. You know, I, I don't hear a lot about this topic. I just remember I got like an email like a couple months ago from corporate security that said, update your Git client. And that's oh, like that's all that right. we ever heard. Yeah. Like there was like some stuff, but don't worry, it's patched. That's so right. like, like what, you know, is that like a malicious payload or in your code that can affect that? I mean, like, like let's start with that specific example. You know, like what, what was that about? Right. So, uh, there's this, this one, a couple of, uh, a couple of months ago, and actually, I think that email was from me. From me. <laughs> uh, there was, I, I wrote it. I don't know if, it, if I sent it, but I definitely wrote it. Well, I, I immediately went and updated my, my Git client. That's so all you need to do. That's yeah. perfect. No, it scared me. I did too. Yeah. yeah. So uh, that, let, that one is, is a variant on the first problem that we found in Git. And that was, so, so that one's a little bit easier to understand. So let, let me rewind all the way back to that one. So if you look at Git, you can, uh, you can add these things called hooks to your Git repository. Mm -hmm. So, uh, for instance, uh, there's a post checkout hook. So every time you switch branches or check a file out, the post checkout hook runs. Now, the important part about these hooks is that you can't share them with others by checking them into the repository. Right, yep. they live in the .git folder. The .git folder is a place that only Git can write to, okay. or you. So, yep. it's, so it's your only. You can only make a hook for yourself. That's right. Okay. And you know, you can figure out how to distribute that or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But it's not like you just clone a Git repository and it's got hooks already. I was going to say, like, if that's the case, like, well, that's. That I understand why there's problems. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So it's really critical that 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 the Git repository, the .git folder, is not a place that an attacker could could write to by checking something into a repository. So I, I, my brain is already starting to go down the process. I'm seeing where this is headed, but what's <laughs> so, going on? So uh, you got to remember that Git was made by a guy named Linus Torvalds. Yep. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he built the Linux kernel. Linux, of course, anybody who's used it knows that it has a case-sensitive file system. Yes. Mm -hmm. So Git itself is case-sensitive. Except on places that don't have a case-sensitive file system, like Mac and Windows. So mm -hmm. you could check in a, a file called .git slash hooks slash post-checkout, where GIT is all caps. <laughs> mm -hmm. And Git wouldn't say, oh, no, that's the Git repository. Git would uh, say, oh, that's something completely so, so different. That's something totally different. Totally so, different. So when they did the, the compare string or whatever, they yeah. were it was, it was uh, yeah, it was, it was a different case, so it wasn't matching. Yeah. So, what, I mean, what could possibly go wrong? Whoops. Yeah. So that, that was the first one. And this most recent vulnerability was a bit of a variation on that, which was also really actually quite clever. But, uh, but yeah, these would be disastrous if, if they were exploitable. So how are you finding these? Are these, because um, I, I know there's the, you're going to have to remind me what it is, but there's the, the thing that makes Git be able to be really big. Yeah. Uh, the G virtual file system, right? GVFS. That's yes. Right. <laughs> and um, so is it through like the work with that? So, uh, so Microsoft didn't find this most recent one. Okay. Uh, the most recent one was found by a, an independent security oh. researcher. His name is Etienne Stallmans. And he uh, just happened to be poking around and, and found it. Uh, the first one, uh, somebody on the Mercurial project found because okay. Mercurial had the same bug. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So they found it and like, hey, does this work in all these other ones? And sure enough. That's right. That's right. I think uh, it was, I, I think that came through a responsible disclosure as well to, uh, to Bitbucket because Bitbucket hosts 
mercurial repositories and Git repositories. So they were able to piece it together that, well, we're actually affected on both sides. So you, you just mentioned something that I'd like to just kind of like look into a bit more, that responsible disclosure. Yeah. Like I, I hear that, but you know, I don't work in security. I don't find like these kind of bugs. What, what is this term and, you know, What's the process involved? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And it varies uh, between vendors and between projects. But fundamentally, when uh, there's a security hole in Git, what we would like people to do is email the Git security mailing list Mm -hmm. uh, where where it will get investigated and we'll fix it in a, you know, that's the responsible part. We'll fix it. We'll get the uh, release ready before this vulnerability can be weaponized. Well, so Git is open source. It is. Is that list public? The list is not public, no. Okay, I was going to say because that's That would like defeat the purpose, okay, yeah. yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. There, there's the disclosure. I just Boom. wanted to make sure that I wasn't missing yeah. something there. Yeah, okay. no, so, and, and it's, the nice thing about working on Git is that that list is made up of, of people from all sorts of companies. So yeah. Google, Microsoft, GitHub, um, all these people compete with each other, but we work together on the security issues because, you know, it's it, affect I, everybody. They affect everybody. I don't want to, you know, quote unquote, be better than my competition because they have a security hole and <laughs> I knew about it two days earlier. And yeah. so I, I was able to patch that's, that's bullshit. Can I say bullshit on air? Sure. That's bullshit. <laughs> so what happens though, when people have a different definition of this re- responsible discovery because uh, I know that Google, in general, they have a policy uh, 90 days, I believe it is, and then we're telling the world. Yeah, that's right. So, I mean, how, how do we as an industry you know, deal with it when we have these companies that do that? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. He's like, he's like I'm not I, touching That's I, above I, your pay grade? <laughs> it is above my pay grade. I don't have a great answer because there are these, these pushes and pulls when it comes to these yeah. things. Like I said, that so if, I, if I'm rewinding again to that first Git security hole, like Microsoft, we had to patch Team Foundation Server 2013, 2015, Visual Studio 2013, 2015, Visual Studio Team Services, all of these products. And we had to do it like we wanted to do it all on the same day so that we... We, you know, a so that our customers didn't uh, weren't able to be vulnerable to this, but also, you know, just because that seemed like the right thing for us to do, and it was incredibly challenging to line up all this uh, all this disclosure with the rest of the the community, and and we ultimately were able to do it, but it was, I mean, it was an incredible amount of work. Like there was working weekends, and you know, I had to hop on a trip to Redmond all of a sudden to, to, to deal with this stuff. So uh, I'm really sympathetic when somebody says it could take more than 90 days. Um, the, the, the world moves really slowly, especially when you have multiple you know, box products that you've shipped that you have to update. Uh, so I, I don't have an answer, but um, you know, a lot of people look at the Google 90-day thing and, and you know, Microsoft has been affected by this, right? Several uh, times. Yeah, yeah, where a disclosure, Google has disclosed a security hole that they found that Microsoft hadn't patched yet. And a lot of people say that Microsoft is being slow or dragging their feet, but I, these things are complex. So I'm, I'm really sympathetic. Yeah, but at the same time, Google will, like, when we look at Meltdown Inspector, they have worked with the industry and gone way beyond their, their own limits. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah, I, I was just going to say, like, I, you know, I, I, I understand why they pick 60 days. I mean, there's no nobody has the right answer. Right. <laughs> yep. That's like, right. You're not going to get everybody to say, like, oh, well, six months is the number. Right. Well, so, and, and obviously they have that for a reason, too, because there's some companies who would just never do right, anything. And right, that's right. the impetus to, like, hey, get off your rears. Yep. Yeah. I totally see both sides of it. I just I don't have an answer. <laughs> so yeah. getting back to some of these, like, get. Um, vulnerabilities. Is this where, like, if you get that in the right area and you wire it up correctly, you can kind of execute any code? Yeah, that's right. So what you could do is check some actual, you know, an executable into your Git repository Mm -hmm. and then check this malicious hook into your Git repository so that when you you run Git clone, and this most most recent one, you had to run Git clone dash dash recursive. Yeah. So that's not something that everybody does. Um you had to run git clone dash dash recursive and all of a sudden it would run the code that it 
was checked into the repository. So yeah, it's totally, uh, it, it would be really bad if, if these sorts of things were to get out. So I'm, I'm really impressed by the security community around Git that they're so responsible about this stuff. Yeah. Now, any of these vulnerabilities, like if I'm just working on like an internal code base with people that I know, um, do any of these vulnerabilities affect that, or is it is it really mostly these public repositories? So the biggest risk by far is yeah. the public repositories, right. because if you're working on a, a team that you trust and you're building their code that they've yeah. checked in and running their code that they've checked in, I mean, that's the much easier vector for them to attack you if they wanted to, right? Right, right. So, so no, obviously you should absolutely keep updated and keep your security holes patched and 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 you know stay on the latest versions of the software but no realistically you shouldn't be that worried and even when it comes to you know open source and and public projects i mean if i come up to you and say hey hey friend why don't you why don't you clone this repository that <laughs> i got make you. sure I, you specify a the repository yeah, for you <laughs> exactly exactly so there's some social engineering as well and once you're into social engineering attacks there are probably, again, easier vectors. So these, this isn't the end of the world sort well, of stuff. I, I could, yeah, I, I could see this being pretty bad, though, because you could, um, I mean, just the fact that it's just a clone. I mean, you just say, hey, I, you know, you could, you could make up capabilities that actually don't exist and say, oh, yeah, just clone it and try it. Like, try, you know, it, it works, man. It, it, it doubles your RAM. Just look through the code. Yeah. yeah. It, yeah. Double, it doubles your RAM. Why don't you just clone it and just look through the code? If you, if well, and then when people RAM. look through the code, there's nothing in the code. It's in this yeah. weird thing you've it's checked al- in elsewhere. It's exactly. already happened. Exactly. <laughs> All their personal information has gone up there. and That's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I trust that when I clone a repository, it can't affect me. And, th- and that's really the, the vector that people are attacking. And, yeah. and we want to make sure that that, that that stays true. Okay, this is scary. So I'm wondering, are there are there any ways that you could, uh, I don't want to say quarantine, but you know, like like there's there's ways to protect yourself on the web. Like you can run a browser inside of a virtual machine. Sure. Um, I mean, like, are there certain types of people that that should be maybe they're like super paranoid? Should they be should they be cloning in a VM and then like copying the source? Like, I don't want to go that far. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you you could do that. Yeah. But that's. That's a level of parent. I'm a pretty paranoid person. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I carry two cell phones. I, <laughs> you know, I, I, I carry a USB condom with me. Uh, and I still clone repositories on, on my machine, even after seeing all of these security holes. But no, I mean, what is sure. a USB condom? Sorry. Uh, it only passes the power line through <laughs> oh. and, and doesn't. So that way you can charge line. your phone, but yeah. the data won't go through. So somebody can't start. I think that's more of like a diode. I don't think that's how it's works. called a condom, though. <laughs> we'll have to have a link in the show notes. I've never seen one of these. That's that's awesome because I've had that where I've wanted to plug in, but I'm like, I don't. Yeah. I don't know that port. I don't trust American Airlines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. Well, yeah. Yeah. And I've heard I've heard people like tapping into the plane computers on uh, some of those ports. So right. yeah. Right. That's great. Yeah, I do because I I have plugged into a plane, so I'm probably infected. And oh yeah, yeah, I've uh, yeah. Your 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 phone's been rooted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, geez, I expect this stuff from uh, from Keith Casey, but not from you. <laughs> He's usually the one that scares me with well, all this stuff. Paranoia takes all forms. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so this isn't your first at conference either. It's not. I was here. I think it was 2014, a couple of years ago. All right, and. I know you. Uh, we were chatting a little bit earlier. You said you come here for other reasons as well. I do. I love that conference. This is a, a great conference. It's incredible. The community is is amazing. You know, it's it's very tight knit. It's not mm-hmm. like a, a a build or an ignite, which are also great conferences, but they are, you know, the 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 geniuses talking to you sort of conferences. This is the geniuses talking to each other sort of a <laughs> conference, and oh, I. Beth. I like this a lot. So it's a, it's a, it's a great conference, but I'm also actually from the Midwest originally. Uh, so that's part of how I got so plugged you into that to conference. So you get out here because you're speaking and then you just take a little side trip back home? <laughs> I can't let my boss listen to this podcast at all. Uh, I do. I, I am going to go uh, visit my, my mom. No, I mean, you know, I, I say that in, in jazz, but I mean, you know, I think part of the reason why this is so family friendly is because, like, you don't feel bad about coming here and leaving your family behind. Uh, <laughs> I mean, or, or yeah, no, I mean, oh, because you're taking them with you because you're bringing your, your family, family with you, Carl. Oh, okay, okay. And, and you know, I, I think that goes both ways too. I'm mean, like, you, there's more to work than just the tech, yeah. And you know, 
just because you have all these other things in your life doesn't mean that you leave those behind as soon as you clock in in the morning. Now, this is a life hack, I think. Like yeah. we, we should talk about this on the show sometime about using, you know, if, if you do have to travel for work, you figuring out how to utilize that. Microsoft specifically, and I'm sure other companies have this, actually have policies around it. And it's most of it is like, hey, don't don't do stupid stuff that's going to cost the company money. Yeah. Right. It's usually like, hey, if you're bringing a spouse, like, we're not paying for your spouse. It better not affect the price of your trip. But if your spouse wants to go along, then so be it. Yeah. Perfectly reasonable, right? Yeah, yeah. So I, I just, I think that's a good life hack. I wouldn't. Yeah. That as a. I'm actually meeting. So my wife is in Toronto right now at another conference yeah. because she, she does the conference circuit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's not a, a software developer. She's a mathematician, but apparently it's the same. They got conferences too. <laughs> uh, and so we'll actually meet uh, in Chicago uh, on our way home. So we get to fly home together. Nice. That's, that's our that's our anniversary. <laughs> okay. Right. Very cool. Very cool. I, I did want to ask you one other question in regards to Git. So I, I just want the the packages. Um, do you do you do anything with like the any kind of vulnerabilities around packages? I mean, that's that's like a whole. That seems like a whole another like Pandora's box, right? Yeah, it sure does. No, I stay <laughs> I stay away from that. Okay. Uh, I don't. So yeah, I I'm kind of old school. I write a lot of C still. Yeah. Um, because you know, Git is mostly C. My project is libgit two. That's all yeah. C. Uh, I and we don't we don't really have packages. So. But if you if you want to pad a string like on the left side, <laughs> <laughs> I would need a package for that. Oh, okay, yeah. okay, that's what I figured. Yeah, just be careful out there. <laughs> that's that's exactly right. <laughs> okay, th- well, thank you so much for coming on here and talking to us. It was awesome. Thank you both. Okay, so we sat down and talked to Curtis Jibbo. How's it going? It's going great. So you and I just had a conversation, and then I realized we should have hit record. So now we hit record. Nice. <laughs> it was a good conversation, so I figured we'd we'd, uh, we'd record it. So, um, we, you know, we were talking like you guys are using a whole bunch of different technologies, and it just sounds like a a. What well, I think probably in hindsight, it's it it sounds fun. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't <laughs> so fun living through it, but yeah. Kind of walk us through like the evolution of the the apps that you've been working on. Yeah. So so uh, I work for a company that builds. Uh, apps for workforce management and healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've been in the Microsoft stack for a long time. We've lived through a few different generations. Mm-hmm. Um, we've ran through wonderful, fun challenges of technologies that go away. Um, Silverlight is an example. So we've had to go through a whole bunch of different transformations along the way, as well as taking a, a large legacy product, um, 10 million lines of code, yeah, and then converting it into a cloud-based application from on-premise to the cloud. Um, the whole way, picking up new technologies and moving forward. Um, so, you know, taking heavy SOAP services and then converting them to RESTful to work with mobile and Ionic uh, framework for our mobile applications so that we can get a tech stack that our engineers can use both in the web as well as all the way through mobile to get the best use out of our staff um, throughout and keep the same skill set. So it's uh, it, it's been an interesting journey. Um, we've had our bumps along the way, mm-hmm. but, uh, it, you know, we, we're starting to mix a lot of different technologies and and cloud technologies all on top of it. So yeah, I did want to ask you. You had mentioned the strategy that I thought was kind of interesting, and maybe it's common. I just haven't heard about it. But these having these soap services yep. and then putting a REST layer on top. And what I like about that is you can still use the soap service, yep. but then you can also get the nice REST based API. And then eventually, once everything's using the REST based API, then you can remove the soap service. So how Correct. how did that work out? Yeah. So so when we first started off, we we have I mean Silverlight we just got to get rid of, um, right? Mm-hmm. It's just not gonna or and some of the WPF apps they don't really work for the cloud. So we have to rip those out. So what we do, we looked at how do we want to really shape our data? And we realized really quickly that even our SOAP services were not shaped appropriately. Mm-hmm. Like, so by putting over a, sort of like a, almost like a API gateway almost by using a RESTful service on top of it, it gave us the opportunity to refactor at least at the surface layer mm-hmm. um, what we're exposing to the front end. It also allowed us to leave the old front end there so we can run both by side by side until we're done. Yeah, and get more adoption. Awesome. Yep. Right? So you can attract, are they using the Silverlight version? Are they using the web version? Or are they using the mobile version? Um, so it gives you that opportunity. And then when we have time, we can go back and refactor the plumbing and streamline and get rid of the extra layer if we don't want it. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was, that's was been one of our approaches because we needed some speed. I mean, we have a lot of Silverlight or, and other technologies that are out there that we had to get rid of. And it was just a quick, a quick win for us to get as fast to the user experience side, getting a, a new version of the app out there, and then we can always pay that tech debt out over time. Mm-hmm. The other big question I had, and then I'll let Carl ask a question, was <laughs> <laughs> you mentioned that, you know, out of this 10 million lines of code, you had these WPF applications. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, you know, like, how, you mentioned, like, converting those to the web. Like, how did you convert those to actually work on the web? Like, what does that look like? Yeah, so for us, it was, it was a rewrite of the UI layer. Mm-hmm. But again, we had SOAP services behind it. 
Okay. So we re-leverage those. Uh, we then would write uh, RESTful, um, so those are ASP.NET um, web API services on top of them, just calling into the SOAP services to re-expose them in a lighter fashion. And then we, and then we took Angular, uh, Angular JS application. Now Angular, now we're on Angular 4, 3, 4, somewhere in there now. Um, Angular's changing every three weeks, it seems sometimes. Yep. Um, but we're, we're on a more modern Angular framework. And it, it literally is a rewrite. We can't, we couldn't take the WPF app and go. We also did take the opportunity to simplify UI where it was more complicated. Um, you have to verify, you know, we're now doing web. It's a little bit different. Uh, can we get the user experience and the speed we want? Um, we're not doing as much stuff on the client anymore. So you have to push all that workload off. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a decent service layer behind it. So for us, most of the logic was already gone. It wasn't in the UI. So we had a pretty decent approach to how we wrote our applications in the past, which helped us pay a little bit forward. So, Okay. So to me, it seems like as you're going from, you know, having an older service and a newer service, how important was like analytics and collecting data and how it was being used? Was that important at all for uh, your process and decision-making along the way? So one of the things, so we've added a lot more analytics into our app. Uh, we didn't have any back in the day, right? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't first thought. So we've added a lot more to that section of our application going forward because like, for example, when we're doing both UIs together, tracking those telemetry, how many users are using the old stuff versus mm-hmm. the new stuff? Mm-hmm. Um, how I imagine there's it? a lot of stuff you didn't know. You're like, I wish we had this info. Oh, as we're digging through this old application, we're finding areas of code that ever, ever, ever got executed. Like, we built a feature, literally shipped a feature that was never used. <laughs> never used. Well, that, we that, built never, it that never happens. Never happens. <laughs> never happens. Never happens. So, so we sort of changed our mentality around that. So now having, needing, we need telemetry. You yep. need to track all of this because our goal isn't about shipping software anymore. Mm-hmm. It's about getting it adopted. And that's the biggest key for us now in our change in mentality as we go forward. Everything's getting telemetry. I so like, we can track I it. I really like that. That's, so, I really like that. So, I mean, once again, you could still fall into that pit of like we have all this telemetry mm-hmm. that nobody ever looks at. How, how do you make sure that this data gets to the people that yeah, uh, so, need it? Yeah, so our product team actually looks at it on a regular basis. Um, that helps drive their backlog, right? Where are areas... Even, even not products. So take it this way, right? A product manager is looking at their telemetry. They realize that a bunch of clients are not using a specific subsection. That's an opportunity for us to go in and help optimize, right? Mm-hmm. So, so in our case, what we're trying to do is optimize workforce in the healthcare system. Mm-hmm. And it's super important to be using all the tools you have to minimize your costs, to get the right people the right place at the right time, to ensure that patients get the right care. Mm-hmm. So it, it's super important that we have that, 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 information so we can help drive clients to be more successful by actually using all the tools they have. Mm-hmm. Um, so that'll get handed off to our services team and our services team will go engage with clients. Um, so they, but our product team actually is the one that manages it. We also do have our senior engineers and architects. We monitor the telemetry on our own. Yep. Um, and we also look for opportunities like, wow, we're getting a lot more concurrency than we thought we were going to have. We maybe should have done a little bit different design pattern here. <laughs> Because um, we've ran into that trap before as well. So, I mean, performance, you have, you have a little bit of performance, a little bit of user experience, a little bit of just good business telemetry where probably should tell people to start using features they're not using. So, Yeah, so you, you also mentioned that you had a bunch of WPF applications before mm-hmm. and you're using a lot more Angular and web technologies now. How, was that a, a change or was there any uh, effect on your customers that you didn't expect making kind of going from the client to the web? Uh, some of the big ones, some of the big ones for us is that we had to come up with better caching strategies for the web. Um, cause in the client, we were caching things. So we were getting away with mm-hmm. like having large data stores locally right on the machine. Yeah. Not good. Um, from a user perspective, our clients have been asking for it. Um, it's very difficult, especially in like healthcare organizations to do large deployments of software. Mm-hmm. So even if it's a click once and now I have extra constraints, I, I have to allow that. Um, and they're all about security nowadays, so they'd rather they'd rather stay away from that if they can. Mm-hmm. And they can control everything from the web, right? They can run everything through proxies. They can ensure that it's only internal. They can really control that traffic a little bit better. Um, so not having all those constraints on what's on the client machine helps them. So in our case, we got uh, we have a lot of people just giving us feedback: get out of these thick apps, please. Yep. Get out of these thick apps. We need people to be able to access this from home. We need it on mobile because half the time we're not sitting by a computer anymore. Mobile is the platform. Uh, so a lot of our stuff has shifted now to mobile experience versus even web. Um, we still have web for the, you know, if you look at, think about scheduling a hospital um, and, and you do maybe central ske- uh, central office scheduling, that's something you probably can't do on a phone. You need a yeah. tablet or you need a bigger screen because you're looking at a lot of staff. Yeah. Um, so we have to have both experiences, but we, we build them together. Um, and we have both the mobile and then the web experience for it now. So and that's actually great to hear that the employees, like they're actually, you know, the tech that we want to build, like they're actually aligned with that now. So that, that sounds great. I did want to ask you, you mentioned Angular. So um, everything's in TypeScript? 
Uh, not well. Well, <laughs> unless you're an Angular JS, the first version. Um, so yeah, so we're we've moved to TypeScript. Um, and that, that's been a that's a transformation. Like, um, and we were talking earlier, and I said uh, we built it. We had to rewrite our mobile app. We were doing native. We couldn't move fast enough, so we need a hybrid framework. We picked mm-hmm. Ionic, yeah, which is Angular underneath as well. And as soon as we got done rewriting it, Angular 2 came out and shook up <laughs> everything in the Angular scene, and you went from JavaScript to TypeScript. Yep. Um, so now we had to jump through that. Um, but with a bunch of people who are C-sharp developers traditionally and knowing type safety and wanting that, yeah. that this has sort of helped us in that transition over and getting them a little bit more comfortable in the JavaScript realm. Um, so yes, now we've moved over. Now we've got Angular uh, with TypeScript, and, and we're working forward with that. It's, it's, been a, it's been an interesting journey. It is a lot of retraining because yeah. um, it is something new. Um, but we, you know, and everything's changing on a regular basis. We have to be continuous learners. Yeah. Um, if you're going to be in this field, it's just the way it is. Yeah. But I think, I think TypeScript is a really great natural progression. I shouldn't say from C sharp, but like if you, mm-hmm. if you have to do, you know, JavaScript, TypeScript, that if you yeah. have to get into that type of paradigm, I think C sharp developers will feel very comfortable in TypeScript because it is very similar. I mean, it was the same guy who created it basically. And, um, but it, it's, and, and a lot of the stuff that, uh, um, I think he wishes he could have changed in C sharp. He did change in TypeScript, so I think it's a great language for those types of devs. Yeah, I, and I agree. And, and and we've we've had a once we got past that first little bit of a learning curve and understanding the change from JavaScript to TypeScript, I, I think it's really caught on. So I think we've now our teams are are all over it, and, and we've got everybody using it. We're using TypeScript with even Node.js services. We're doing we're writing it all in TypeScript now. That's cool. So it's becoming yeah. our our platform go forward in the JavaScript realm. Is it's really TypeScript? Yeah, it's so good. And then you know, Carl and I work in uh, manufacturing, so we you know we're not healthcare experts. But uh, one of the things that we're seeing in manufacturing is like uh, AI and ML are yep. are really like a lot of uh, partners and customers that um, maybe didn't want to start doing you know data collection or you know use these various pieces now with AI and ML like they've they've gotten an appetite for this stuff. They're like, okay, now I want the data. I want the data. So, um, are you really seeing a big demand for AI and ML yeah, in the healthcare space? Yeah, we're seeing it across all all of healthcare, right? So you, you talk either you, you can talk about competition, you can talk about other areas within it, right? You talk about the health side, the EMRs and all of those. Everybody is getting into that machine learning and and artificial intelligence, especially if you think of healthcare, right? The more we can predict, the more preventative things we can do for a patient, Mm -hmm. um, whether that's just, hey, we predicted this person's going to need more care, so we staffed another person. Yeah. That all helps them drive to a better efficient model that allows them to number one, we're all going to need healthcare someday. Yeah. Um, So for me, it's very personal. Um, but we're gonna we're gonna get the right people there for you, um, and we and we know that hey, there's some something's happened. Maybe maybe there's been a car accident. You can look at those type of feeds, and you can bring that in, and you can start making decisions. Okay, we got a weather pattern. We got a car accidents happened. We know there's gonna be influx based on where this is all happening to a f- specific hospital. We know you're gonna need to up your staff, so you need to start calling people on. Yeah. So we can then proactively go, okay, who hasn't worked a double last? <laughs> we don't want people in overtime taking care of patients if we can help it. Um, and then and match those up and say, hey, here are the right people to call on. You need this many people, and then just go right. So we we call it like sort of intelligent workflows. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure that we're helping get to, get you to the decision. Know that you have to make the decision. Not be going and refreshing a browser, uh, going to your mobile phone and doing it yourself and have to cognitively do it. Because in our case, all of our users, their number one need is patient care. Mm-hmm. It it's not sitting in front of a computer. It's it's literally taking care of a patient. So we need to be proactive, tell them, hey, you need to do something, and here's what you should do. And yeah. so that's what we are. We get into the machine learning and AI portion of it. Um, and we have lots of data to feed off of because um, in the healthcare, you, can li- you have the EMRs, which you know, are processing orders all the time, sending clinical information that you can sort of look at and then make some predictions off of. So. Okay. So changing gears up a little bit, talk a little bit about that conference. Yep. How, how, many year, how many years have you been attending that conference? Oh, I've been here a few. Um, I haven't been here every year. I've skipped a few, so I'm probably minus three. So that'd be, I guess, what is it? Where are we at now? What is this? I have no idea. Seven? 2018. <laughs> yeah, there's like signs one, over there. When was the first one? Four? I don't know. So it's like, say four. Four or five. Four or five, four five. years. Yeah. Yeah, so you also do you're a little bit more engaged in ca- in that conference what what mm-hmm. do you help with uh or yeah, helping so, with this year yeah so the last last couple of years i've been helping out I, I, with registration setup teardown all that all that kind of stuff so um i help anybody who needs help i walk around with a shirt on and talk to everybody sponsors or 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 anybody that's an attendee um just try to help them get engaged know where they need to be um make sure that they can get all the stuff they need to take care of um uh 
and their families, because we have lots of families here, by the way, if you haven't noticed. <laughs> yeah. so, like a third of our population is now family, which is awesome, by the way. Yeah, the, the cups are a big hit this year yeah. <laughs> for our swag. Yeah, so I've been, handing out, I've been handing out swag all day, and I've been helping sponsors. I've been, today, I've been primarily helping out uh, speakers and sponsors get set up. So. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, Jason and I, we really love, you know, community events like this one. You know, what, you know, what is some of your favorite things about community events in general, especially that conference? Yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about connecting, um, sharing experiences. Um, we've all been in the trenches. We've seen things. It's nice to know others have. Um, and we have just a wealth of knowledge. Uh, you yeah. get this many people together in different, different industries, different markets, different demographics. It really helps, one, level myself up. But I feel I also help others level up. Yeah. So like some of my favorite things, I love open spaces. It's my one of my favorite things. I probably spend more time in open spaces than sessions. Sorry for the speakers. I, I do make some. <laughs> but I feel so but having both opportunities, right? If I want to just go take in some con- content content, I can go to a, any session I like. Mm-hmm. I can go learn some stuff. If I want to have more of an intimate conversation, I can go to open spaces where it's more of an open dialogue where I'm not just a receiver, I'm also a giver. And I think that's that's huge, and that's the my favorite session is open spaces because of that. But I just I love getting together with all these people. It's uh, it's a really good community. We do take care of each other. Um, I mean, we're seeing stuff all day in the Slack. Everybody's helping each other figure out where they need to be or what they need. And uh, I just I love the experience of of just being around um, other peers in the industry. Awesome. Last question: What uh, is that a is that a Chromebook? That is a Chromebook Pixel. Yes. That and thing, it, it, that is a, it's a sweet looking machine. At least folded up it is. Yes. <laughs> yes. It, it also is running Visual Studio Code. <laughs> okay. In How, Chrome OS. How's that work? They're, the Chrome has a development branch right now where they've added um, the ability to run Linux apps. Oh, okay. So you can download the Debian version of uh, VS Code and actually run it once you get all the dependencies installed. Yeah. So I can literally run Visual Studio Code on a Chrome OS and it's it's sort of an interesting experience. That's so, cool. I've been so I've been working on like getting uh, .NET Core running on it and <laughs> Node.js running on it, and just seeing if I can use this as a developer experience as another alternative. That's okay. pretty awesome. It sounds painful, but yeah. you know, somebody, somebody's got to experience. I like it, hacking through stuff. <laughs> okay, cool. Well, thank you so much for coming here and talking to us. Thank you very much for having me.